Hello, everyone. It's Millie Metz. Welcome to Ask an American. This is season one, and today I am here with the amazing, talented Tamina Watson, who is an immigration attorney based in Seattle, Washington, so right up in the Pacific Northwest. Welcome to the program, Tamina. Thank you so much, Millie, for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, we can't wait. We can't wait to hear all about you. So without further ado, will you please tell all of our listeners who you are and a little bit about your life in Seattle? Sure. Well, where do I start? Um, my name is Tamina Watson. I'm an immigration attorney in Seattle. Before I um, moved to Seattle, I was actually born in London, UK, where I was raised. And then for a little part of my life, I did live in Bangladesh, which is in the South Asian subcontinent. Um, when I came back to London, I was 18 and I went to uh, university and then to law school. And then I became a barrister in the UK. Tamina, tell me more about what it took to become a barrister. That sounds so interesting. I was practicing criminal defense law as well as some civil law as a barrister. Um, before I qualified as a barrister, you have to do a, an apprenticeship in the UK uh, called a pupillage. Before I did that, I actually met my now husband when I was visiting Seattle after my UK bar exams. And I met him in 2002 on a blind date. Uh, and I called it Sleepless in Seattle because I met him um, just before I was returning to London after a two-week trip. And uh, we spent a um, couple of evenings together and I was madly in love from the moment I met him. And I think the mu feeling was mutual because when I went back to London thinking, oh my goodness, am I ever going to see the sky again? I have an email waiting for me saying, here is my flight details and I will see you on such and such date in London and I thought my goodness I am going to see him and uh, I qualified as a barrister soon thereafter and once I qualified he proposed and I moved to America and you know it was interesting finding my way into the legal world once I moved here because the, the legal education is very different uh, in the US from the UK and I, it took a little while to understand how I could become a lawyer in the US US without going to law school again. So it sounds like your law degree is from the UK. How did you narrow down where to take the bar exam in the US? So it's interesting. In the, if you have a UK law degree, you can actually take the New York bar exams and the Californian bar exams. And when I assessed the two options I had, I studied the New York bar exams and became a, a qualified New York lawyer living in Seattle. Um, and that limited me in the areas I could practice. And it turned out immigration law is a federal um, legal area and it can be practiced anywhere uh, in the US and somehow uh, immigration landed on my lap and I became an immigration lawyer. So most of our listeners don't know this but I took a long break between undergraduate and graduate school and I was very reluctant to undertake psychological studies. Tell us and our listeners of course 
What led you to choose immigration law? It wasn't my first choice. I really didn't want to practice immigration law intentionally, but it kept following me until I succumbed to it and said, okay, I'll do this. And oddly enough, the very first day I started practicing immigration law, I kept saying, why did I fight this? I was born to practice immigration law. It's intellectually challenging. It is fast paced. It is really, really uh, rewarding because you're helping people who are CEOs of companies all the way to the domestic violence uh, abuse um, victim. And you see the results of your work relatively quickly rather than the transactional lawyer who is, uh, you know, working on, you know, litigation issues that could, you know, take years. So it, I quickly realized that I was meant to do this. And my entire life background, uh, living in the UK, living in Bangladesh, you know, having the cultural education as part of my upbringing made me so suitable for this job that, you know, it was my destiny and I had to accept it. And only when I accepted it, I, I realized how much of an impact I could have. So in 2006, I became an immigration lawyer and I was practicing with somebody else. And then in 2009, I opened my own practice uh, called Watson Immigration Law. So that's Watson Immigration Law uh, in Seattle. And I... Uh, realized at the time that it was at the height of the recession and a lot of people who came to me were being laid off from their jobs and if you are on an, uh, a work visa a work visa in the US you always need to maintain your employment oh, yeah. and the moment you do not have your job you are not in immigration status anymore so it was happening, you know, so frequently because of the recession. And the one thing I kept hearing from people uh, was that I want to start my own company. I've always wanted to start my own company. I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Help me do that. And the immigration laws that we have in the U.S. are very um, uh, rigid uh, and, you know, set in the 1950s and 60s oh where it doesn't really take into account the modern day uh, entrepreneur's needs and the modern day entrepreneur's way of working. Tamina, in addition to practicing law, it sounds like you've done a fair amount of research and writing. Will you tell us more about those experiences? So I started to research, how can I help these people? And it just so happened that the first startup visa bill had dropped in Congress. And I knew that was the answer to the problems that most of the timing. It was really good timing because I kept researching and I couldn't find anything. Mm -hmm. And as I'm banging my head on the wall, that dropped and I realized that's what we need. We need something new and fresh for the modern day entrepreneur. So I held on to that concept uh, and I started to write about it. Um, blog about it. I became an avid blogger uh, on Watson Immigration Law. We, we have a blog. And that's another story of how I became a blogger. But this was one of the topics that I started to write about continuously. And the startup visa bill kept being reintroduced year after year after year, um, because our Congress really doesn't do anything when it comes to immigration. And um, f through that writing process, when I was writing about other things, but this was my pet subject, if you like, yeah. reporters and lawmakers and policymakers started to approach me as a subject matter expert. And then in 2013, 
you remember you might remember this Millie there was a comprehensive immigration reform bill yes, in Congress yes. yes it was huge and it actually passed in the Senate but it failed in Congress and that's why the entire bill um, failed mm. but was what was interesting about that is that the startup visa portion did uh, come up in the 2013 comprehensive immigration reform bill and it was slightly different to the other bills that were uh, dropped in Congress before uh, and what happened was because of my passion for the subject matter when the bill had dropped out around midnight and it was about uh, 1100 pages I sort of woke up I was sort of you know snoozing around my laptop thinking I'm working but I'm not really working mm -hmm. but I sort of woke up as soon as this email came into my inbox and said here's the bill and I scrolled through the thousand pages to find the startup visa provisions and I went to work I studied it like it was my exams and then from midnight to 5 a.m. I just didn't move from my kitchen table and by 5 a.m. I had a blog post about this is a summary of the bill mm -hmm. and this is what it says and by 7 a.m. I had people contacting me trying to connect on the issue and what's interesting in the, the at that time there were only a handful of people really interested in the issue as I was mm -hmm. and so we became this ad hoc team uh, of you know how can we make this better you know and these ad hoc team con contain consisted of somebody who had politics um, expertise somebody who, who was an entrepreneur and had entrepreneurial expertise and I was a legal expert so this you know three musketeers sort of team that we became we started to advise lawmakers on what we needed to change in the bill yeah. and our changes were actually adopted in the um, not adopted but um, uh, presented to Congress and it was an, you know a wonderful experience to work with uh, senators on the issue and how a bill you know gets amended so those amenders were uh, filed but because of the way Congress eventually acted they, those didn't get passed but the experience was tremendous because I'd never had the uh, privilege of working with you know lawmakers who are in the news every day and so so when that happened, you know, it gave me the experience, uh, you know, that made me different from other lawyers uh, almost overnight because now I have this experience. And I kept running with this, um, uh, this topic. The startup visa was my pet subject. And, you know, it's interesting. You and I maybe would now think of it, but typically you don't think about write, writing to the White House. No. You know, you're no. like, oh, that's not something Definitely you know. Yeah, yeah, you know. Indeed. So I, I sat on my chair so disappointed thinking, what are we going to do? This bill is not going to pass. So I took it upon myself to write to the president. I said, you know, I have this letter and I, I never shared it on my blog, but I had this letter that I said, hey, you need to now consider executive action mm. because comprehensive immigration reform is not going to happen. And when you do, I would like to see these four things. And one of them was the startup visa. So in 2014, he did come up with executive orders. And one of them was to have a provision for entrepreneurs using existing law. And then just before he left Congress, uh, sorry, White House in January, there was a final rule on it. But between 2014 and 2017, 
17 January, I really did um, write as much as I could. I started to collaborate with those policymakers who were trying to come up with um, the best kind of rule that would work within the limitations that we would have with existing law. Mm. And what was interesting is that my blog piece with a summary of the, the provisions as they were written in the Federal Register was actually used by the White House in their stakeholder meetings over and over again. And that oh, by its goodness. it was very it was Amazing. very exciting. Yeah, yeah, it was very exciting. Yes. So and as an immigrant, you know, not just as an immigration attorney, which is obviously mm-hmm. your specialty and an area that you're very educated in, but your own experience as an American is one of being an immigrant. And to then see it come into fruition in this way in the, you know, in the highest house of the land, as it were, your impact is that profound. It was, it was very, very moving for me. And it was a privilege. And I have to tell you, I mean, you've hit it on the nail that the immigrant, you know, I realized when these people were coming to me saying, I really want to have my startup. I really want to be an entrepreneur. I realized that, you know, inadvertently without realizing I had achieved the American dream of coming to the U.S., having your own business, you know, um, you know, helping people, having my own family, all the things that people dream about had come true. And these people that were coming to me really wanted that. And I had, I was in a position where I could help them. And that is what drove me over and over again when I heard them. I'm like, oh my gosh, she said, just please help my dream come true. And there's a, there's a running joke in my office. I'm like, oh my gosh, they use the magic words, help me get my dream come true. Mm-hmm. Because then I just have to do whatever I can in my power to help them. So, you know, what's interesting is that this, there was a final rule and I was able to, um, collaborate with uh, with community leaders, industry leaders, as well as the White House policy folks in having an actual impact in what was the, the final rule. But by then, you know, the election had happened yeah. and the writing was on the wall that yeah. the next president was not going to likely no. keep this. No. And so what was interesting in between, um, through all the work I'd done and when the election campaign was going on in 2015, I was very privileged to be invited uh, through the various things I had done to be on Hillary Clinton's immigration working group. And that was probably one of the highlights of everything I've done because I saw... Tamina, so far... It has been the highlight. You have a long and illustrious career ahead of you. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I'm, I'm working hard still, but I, I, that is what I feel the proudest um, because, you know, it was everything that I had done up until that moment that got me the invitation with this very exclusive group of people that I don't even know who they were. They all were because it was so confidential. Oh. And um, so when the election was lost, I instantly sort of spearheaded um, a committee within our local Immigration Lawyers Association because I could see what was coming down the pike. Mm -hmm. You know, the writing was on the wall from the rhetoric and knowing that we would need to have people in place to essentially be shields to these bullets that were going to be um, shot at us, we would need to really be in a position to have those shields. So I started to lead a committee called the Response Committee. And thank goodness I had that because 
it helped me uh, deal with all the calls uh, from organizations and um, law and policymakers to help with what was happening in real time. And one of the things that I realized is everything is going to be so unprecedented that whether you, you are a lawyer, a lawmaker, an organization helping individuals, nobody knows how to deal with it. But what will be important um, the, would be the experience of immigration lawyers and their d deep knowledge of immigration. And that is what I was trying to uh, mobilize when organizations were coming to me saying, we need Know Your Rights events uh, and we're going to need uh, five immigration lawyers for two hours on such and such date. And so as soon as the travel ban happened, you know, I went into, you know, work mode. I didn't move from my table for three days, essentially handling calls and emails, delegating, directing, uh, and essentially trying to meet the needs of the people on the ground. And what was interesting is I was invited to uh, speak at a rally. You know, you may remember, Millie, there were rallies all around the country. Everywhere. Yeah. On that Sunday. Yes. And Seattle had one where there were thousands, maybe 10,000 people mm -hmm. in the center of Seattle. And I was invited to speak at the rally. And it was my first rally speech. <gasps> what was that like? You know, it was, it was um, a little scary, yeah, I yeah. suppose, because there were so many people. But, you know, I have spoken in public. So it, the public speaking part of it wasn't as scary, but just the, the outrage, energy, the, the energy. energy in the space. Yeah. I can't even imagine how overwhelming that must have felt, given both the message and the podium from which you were kind of, you know, putting forth your passion and your commitment to staying the course. I mean, I think you'd worked so hard. That's what Truly. I'm hearing. Truly. And it was, it was, it was an honor being invited to speak that day. And, you know, maybe I'll share the link. It's, it's on my blog. Yes, the speech yes, is on my absolutely. blog. We'll um, so, notes. They'll be in there for sure. So that was, that was my first rally speech. And from then I'd spoken at various other rallies, but what's interesting is the travel ban. And what I haven't mentioned uh, yet is in the meantime, I've had a radio show and I had had it for about a year and a half by the time this travel ban happened. Yes. So because of the, writing I do through the blog and various other publications, through my work at various organizations, as, you know, as a volunteer and supporter, but also being a radio personality really put me on the map to be a glue um, and a bridge for getting information uh, in real time to those who need it. So the airport, law, the airport issue essentially turned out to be that people coming to me saying, hey, I've got three people stuck at the airport, or I have somebody who's in the air and doesn't even know they're not going to be able to get out. I mean, that, that Friday afternoon was so chaotic. I will never forget it. Um, and I, you know, I, I, and I, I would be interested, I mean, to hear from people who were really stuck in the air, uh, who were in the air when the, the executive order was signed, not realizing what was going to be, you know, that they were going to be facing at the airports. So pretty quickly from there, from some of the colleagues I had been working with, um, we came up with something called airportlawyer.org. 
And that became a very important tool for that particular crisis. And it it was co-founded by two other uh, lawyers and two tech companies. And, you know, those um, links and names are also on my blog. And I'll make sure that you have those. But Airport Lawyer became an incredibly important tool connecting volunteer immigration lawyers uh, to passengers who were distressed and detained at airports and within so the first weekend was chaos you know everybody's at the airports as you may remember and we're all sort of muddling through to see how we can help and by the following weekend we worked around the clock and then we had that we that website up and running i must give a shout out to the following people um greg mcclawson who's a fellow immigration lawyer takao yamada also a lawyer, and these two lawyers were co-founders of Airport Lawyer. And the technology companies that stepped up were Neota Logic and Clio. And what was interesting about this is everybody worked for free overnight, many, many hours to get the website up and running. And within a week, we had connected 25 airports to volunteer lawyers who could then help the passengers and it went on for weeks and weeks because as you may remember litigation was ongoing and then we had version two and version three so it was very interesting to have that and Forbes did an article on on this issue as well so I would make sure that you have those links So it's been an interesting journey to come to this point because as the executive orders were signed, the writing was on the wall about deporting people and whether DACA would continue. And, you know, it's, it's a point of anxiety for many people in this country, whether these 11 million people would be deported. So, you, you know, what I realized is we don't have enough removal defense lawyers. Um, going into court and practicing detained immigration removal defense, Mm -hmm. which means that you have a case, you're in the courtroom, you're defending the immigrant. You know, as an example, in Washington state, we have about 500 plus immigration lawyers Mm -hmm. and maybe about 30 of them do detained immigration work. Mm -hmm. And it certainly doesn't meet the needs that um, are necessary. Yeah, not at all. And, you know, we're very lucky we have the Northwest Immigrants Rights Project here that is an amazing organization, really uh, at the forefront uh, uh, and the cutting edge of all the issues that are going on and really being the public defender of the time uh, for uh, immigrants. And your listeners may or may not know that there is no right to uh, immigration lawyers in the courtroom for immigrants, just no right to lawyer at all. So heartbreaking. And I think most Americans do not realize that. I think they are woefully unaware of that fact. We take for granted what right citizenship affords us. And I think we make a lot of assumptions about what it affords folks who are even documented, let alone those who are undocumented, who, you know, that's a whole separate issues. So I won't <laughs> open that can of worms. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to talk about on that alone. Yes. So uh, from what I was doing with the, the, the response committee and my work in the community, I was building on an idea of how can we create uh, a vehicle to have more immigration lawyers in the courtroom? And how can we build 
and educate and train more lawyers to become removal defense lawyers. So it's taken about a year and a half, and the timing is so amazing, Millie, because I'd love to announce that I'm working on actually incorporating, as we speak, to create a nonprofit that will um, help get more immigration lawyers in the courtroom. That is amazing news. Tamina, you're hearing it here first. This is her major announcement about this incredible new organization. Tell us more about it. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm excited and thrilled and nervous at the same time. It's going to be called Washington Immigrant Defense Network. And we hope to partner with organizations that are already helping immigration, uh, sorry, immigrants and, and do not have the capacity. And then we hope to work with immigrant, immigration lawyers so that they can um, help uh, immigrants who need need help in the courtroom. And I want to give a shout out to my co-founders, Jay Garrison, an immigration attorney in Seattle, a very well-respected, renowned, very, very bright man who deals with very complex immigration issues. And I also want to give a shout out to my co-founder, Erin Albanese. She's a nonprofit attorney here in Seattle. So there's a lot to um, still figure out, but it's the first step in the right direction. And and um, very soon, uh, we're hoping to do a fundraiser for our pilot program. Uh, and your listeners may or may not be aware that there are 209 detainees at a SeaTac Federal Detention Center, which is actually a private detention center. Mm. It's not even an immigration detention center. And they are holding 209 um, people that they have flown from the southern border. border and... Um, good half of them, uh, more than half of them are actually parents separated from their children. How heartbreaking. It is very heartbreaking. And we, there was a protest last Saturday where some of our federal representatives were able to go into the detention center and were able to see some of these people. And it was just heart-wrenching listening to what they had to say. Uh, so really, the pilot program is going to be around these people so that we can test the idea that we have. But in essence, we are trying to have immigration lawyers paired with non-immigration lawyers as well as non-lawyers to help in one particular case pair them I mean group them as a team and what's interesting is there is so much desire from the community to help but there's really not any vehicle for them to help absolutely because immigration is such a niche and um, a complicated area that you simply cannot just dive into it no no. So we want to harness the desire from the entire community to help these people by having a vehicle to channel that outrage and new skills that people have to offer. And there are skills in, in any immigration case, while the immigration lawyer has the expertise, there's drafting to do, there's paginating to do, there's filing to do, there's so much to do that I think if we can... Uh, harness the energy that the community has at the moment that we can all do something uh, that we can be proud of because this moment in history in our country is likely going to go down as one of the darkest ones and what are we going to say at the end of it are here as one of the many tiny flickering lights you know we're working so hard as a nation as a people to come out on the right side of history i think 
there are a lot of us out there hearing your voice, hearing your message that are feeling so committed to community, to advocacy, to moving out of awareness into action. And that's where I really think Tamina shines. And that's where I really believe the work you're doing with your new organization is going to exceed expectations. I, I believe it. Well, thank you. I hope so. I hope so. Um, I'm going to try my best. And I, I think with everybody's support and, and encouragement and enthusiasm and hard work, I think it's going to fulfill the need. So it's, it's interesting, you know, go from, so coming from England where I wasn't necessarily politically inclined or an advocate because I was just coming out of school and just learning the ropes. You know, I moved to America and I really just want to be a lawyer and I become the lawyer I wanted to always be. Mm. And I just never knew that advocacy is something that I would be doing for the people that I'm seeing every day. Mm. And what's also interesting is that I had that epiphany that I could be part of the change. As a lawyer, I could help shape the law. And the moment I had that epiphany that as a lawyer, I could help shape the law, that's what changed everything for me, to dive into it and be passionate about the startup visa, the entrepreneurs, the immigrants. You know, there are H-1B uh, visa holders who are stuck in the green card backlog. How can I help them? And it all led to, you know, my blog being, you know, a, a source of um, information for a lot of people. And then I wrote a book because of all the um, things that I was doing. And it's called The Startup Visa, yeah. Key to Job Growth and Economic economic prosperity in America, which is available on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles and other uh, book, book um, shops. Um, and it's, it's been an incredible journey coming to this, this point in my life where I'm thinking, you know, there are f a few people like me who have the intense immigration knowledge, mm -hmm. who have the immigrant experience, mm -hmm. and who can be a catalyst for change. And I am so lucky and privileged. My husband is an incredible support to me. He loves me unconditionally and supports me in every crazy idea I ever have. After all, he brought you, he's the reason you immigrated, correct? That's right. That's you right. For love. It was really love that brought you to America. It really, truly was love that brought me here. And, and, and you have poured all of that love and dedication and devotion to making this country the, the place, the home, the world that you want to inhabit, along with, of course, your husband and the people that you love and care for, including the enormous client base that you serve, just the level of service that you bring into your community. I, I want to say it's unparalleled. Yeah. Well, I'm, thank you. I'm trying. And you know, what's interesting also is I have two little children, two baby girls. One is, one is eight, not a baby anymore. Uh, her name is Sophia. And I have an almost six-year-old and her name is Serena. And you know, as a working mother, uh, it's, you, I have the same working mom guilt as most working mothers do. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's interesting that you, you sometimes have to give yourself um, a break yes. from like, you know, it's okay to have a failure here and there and everywhere. But yesterday I have to set, share this story. I went to my, my kindergartner's um, end of school party and I only went because another mother 
really reminded me how important it was. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have gone. And I went to this event and my almost six-year-old daughter, Serena, she was on the screen with all her other, you know, little friends. And all these five-year-olds were talking about, what are you going to do when you grow up? And when it came to her turn, and she's generally very shy and quiet, she had a very loud and confident confident voice on, on screen and said, when I grow up, I want to be a mom because I want to be in charge of the whole family. Oh. <laughs> and it was, it was so heartwarming for me. That's wonderful. That is such a reminder of what a great job you're doing for her at home. Well, you know, I didn't really, I mean, sometimes you just don't see yes. what you, you only see. You're, you're, you are your biggest critic. Absolutely. And so you always see the things that you are failing at, not what you're succeeding at. And so I took that away and I was actually very proud of myself. And then I sat down with her and she was flipping the pages of the writing that she's done all year. And one of them uh, said, when I grow up, I want to be a vet. And I said, oh, Serena, you want to be a vet? And she goes, no, mommy, I can be both. When my children go to school, I'm going to be a vet. Oh. And I tell you, absolutely right. I was, I was like, yes, you can be anything you want and you can be a mom and you can be a vet. And it's my, it's my biggest mommy win to date, I think, because this mommy guilt that one has stays with you at the back of your mind, regardless of what you do, whether you, whether I'm on radio or, you know, writing at work, sitting with a client, you're always thinking, oh, should I be doing something else for my child? Should I be cooking more nutritious food? Should I be giving them more baths? You know, should I be doing laundry more often? <laughs> you know, I mean, um, I think even while you're actually doing those things, there's that gnawing voice that says, should I be doing this better? That's right. Yeah, I mean, it right. really never ends. I think you're absolutely right. And I really, I want to be so sort of honest about how humbling and meaningful your time with us has been, Tamina. I really appreciate your honesty, your vulnerability, your passion. And more than anything else, I, you know, this is such a cliche quote, but it's so rare that it's lived out so clearly in one human being. Another famous barrister from the subcontinent once said, be the change you want to see in the world. And I believe your immigrant experience and your story of coming to the United States and becoming the reluctant immigration attorney really lives into that well-known quote by Gandhi himself. I do think you're doing everything that any of us could even hope to be able to do at the level of impact and change in your community. And it has a ripple effect through not just the rest of the United States, but globally. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm trying my best. And, um, you know, that quote is something that I sometimes chant in my head yeah. like a mantra because sometimes you get depressed seeing what is happening in the world and it's sometimes hard to pick yourself up and you think somebody else might do it and then you don't see somebody else no. doing the thing that you hope would be done and I think every one of your listeners should know that there is power within themselves to do something and this is not a time in our country to sit back. If you care about something, 
important to you, you can actually make a difference. And it doesn't have to be changing the law. It doesn't have to be helping immigrants. It could be something that you care about. There's healthcare, there's education, there's the climate, climate change. Oh my goodness. You, you, you name it. You name it. It's out there. So just, you know, Pick your issue and do something, but do not sit back because history will judge us from the actions we do not take at a time that it's so dark here. And I think on that note, we will wrap up our session today, our episode with the brilliant, the kind, the thoughtful Tamina Watson out of Seattle, Washington. Thank you so much, Tamina. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my honor. Bye for now. Bye.